Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. I've recently found myself visiting Orthodox churches. Now, in the past, especially during times when I was living in heavily Catholic communities in New York and Ohio, I attended Catholic parishes. I have also been a confirmation teacher, and while I was working with the very lean, mean Protestant catechism that I inherited at that particular parish, I drew heavily from the Roman Catholic catechism to tweak it, plump it. I've lived in Catholic community, and hey, I watched the Pope's Eastern Christmas sermons, so, you know, I've pretty much got this Christianity thing down. Then I started making Orthodox friends. Okay, so pardon the very nerdy pun, but encountering Orthodoxy has felt like a real reorientation of my understanding of the body of Christ and how Christians understand themselves and what ecumenism means, what it requires. And also that there is such a thing as East and West. And though all who belong to Christ Jesus are one in him, there are sets of distinctions that are real, are fascinating. And when you're in a non-Orthodox minority, feel both stimulating and strange. In short, I found out I'm a Westerner. And I've found among a lot of my Western friends and colleagues that the East tends to be kind of a blind spot for us. Now, an obvious place to start exploring this relationship between Eastern and Western Christianity, should anyone want to explore, is to worship together, to pray together, to make friends, to share meals, to have an open heart. But theologically speaking, a supposed point of departure, even contention between East and West, has traditionally been in their doctrines of salvation, specifically in the atonement. What has Christ done for us? That shapes entire lives, entire cultures. Last year, I found out about a book by the Reverend Dr. Khaled Anatolios. It's called Deification Through the Cross, an Eastern Christian Theology of Salvation. It's a beautiful book, and its premise is that 
the deeper you go into Christian tradition, into the doctrine of salvation, which is to say, really into the accounts of faithful Christians' exploration of what Jesus has done for them, the more you find a unified doctrine of salvation that East and West fully share and embrace. We've brought on three lovely guests today for a conversation about just these questions. Our first guest is Dr. Marcus Plested. Marcus is Henri de Lubac Chair in Theology at Marquette University and has taught, lectured, and published widely in patristic, Byzantine, and modern Orthodox theology. He is the author of two books to date, The Macarian Legacy, The Place of Macarius Simeon in the Eastern Christian Tradition, and Orthodox Readings of Aquinas. Hmm. He is one of the editors of the Oxford Handbook of the Reception of Aquinas. He also taught at the Institute for Orthodox Christian Studies in Cambridge for 13 years. Dr. Joshua McManaway is our second guest. Josh is visiting assistant professor of the practice in the theology department at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses principally on early and medieval Christianity. Our third guest and moderator is Dr. Timothy O'Malley. Tim is the director of education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life and academic director of the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. He specializes in liturgical sacramental theology, marriage and family, catechesis, and spirituality. We'll include links to our guests' books in the show notes today, along with the book by Father Khaled. Now, strap on your knapsacks for another ecumenical adventure. Are you bringing along a rosary or a prayer rope today? I'll leave it up to you. Godspeed. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Marcus, Josh, welcome so much to the show today. It's just a great delight to have you on. We're here to talk a little bit today about salvation and atonement, very light topics. Uh, but I just uh, wanted to, to get to know a little bit about you. Tell us a bit about yourselves. What do you study? How did you come to study this? Good. Well, a bit about myself. Yes, Marcus Blessed, as, as you know. Um, I'm, uh, my main field of study is in early church, Byzantine theology, modern Orthodox theology, but um, but yes, East-West issues have been quite at the heart of my work for some years now. I, I did a little piece on grace in East and West, Augustine and Macarius, back in about 2000, and that was, I think, the first thing I published on this East-West issue, trying to go deeper uh, behind some of the easy dichotomies that we often uh, spew out in relation uh, to the question of East and West, particularly Greek East and uh, Latin West, but it was particularly the work on Aquinas and looking at how Aquinas was received within Byzantine theology, um, surprisingly positively, um, in fact, that uh, really made me think that we, we need to um, yeah get rid of some of these easy dichotomies. So uh, Joshua McManaway, <clears throat> I'm originally from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I did my undergraduate degree in classics at East Carolina University. In 2010, I came to the University of Notre Dame and did the master's program in early Christian studies. And then I did my PhD here also at Notre Dame. Um, my doctoral work, uh, my research was on the Latin reception of Nestorianism. And so I write about how Latin authors conceive of Nestorius of Constantinople and how, with their own Christologies, they respond to him. And so I, I work really at the intersection of um, kind of Syriac, 
um, into a language into which a lot of Nestorius's writings were translated, and then Latin. And I'm currently teaching Syriac here at, a, at the University of Notre Dame. Well, it's um, it's great to have two such august interlocutors today to talk about the topic at hand. So let's say a Christian, Catholic, a someone who's Orthodox, an Episcopalian or Anglican, says that Jesus saves. What do you think um, they mean by that? Yeah, so I, I shall speak largely from an Orthodox perspective, although I think much of what I have to say is applicable to, uh, well, many Catholics and uh, Anglicans in particular, and perhaps other Protestants um, too. So drawing especially, I think, on the patristic Byzantine uh, tradition. Um, when we talk about Jesus saving, this is certainly something to be understood within a fairly developed Trinitarian framework, Christological framework, and also as a continual um, process. In, in general, if you look at the experience of, say, the, the, the monks of Egypt in the fourth century, they would have been the last people to admit that they were saved, as if something had already been accomplished in them that was a kind of done deal. You know, you, you might at a push find some sort of expression of salvation as a process that begins in this life, in the experience of God, the vision of God as light, through Eucharistic participation and so forth, but never something that's that's done. And I'm thinking here, for example, of someone like Abba Sizoes, one of the desert fathers of the fourth century, who, as uh, his disciples were gathered around um, his deathbed, they could see his soul going off with the angels. and. Uh, and he's telling them, don't take me to heaven just yet. I need more time to repent. Um, but the idea that, um, yeah, we should have be, be saved, I am saved, um, or I have sufficiently repented will be quite foreign, I think, to a, an orthodox sensibility. And I think any um, traditionally rooted um, expression of Christianity. And when we're talking about this ongoing um, process of salvation, uh, we're talking about an appropriation in ourselves, beginning in this life, but certainly only consummated in the next life of the, uh, not only the expiation of sins brought by Christ on the cross, but the um, entry into the divine life, that the whole um, salvific drama of incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection um, opens up uh, to human beings. And in general, particularly in the Orthodox tradition, when, when we speak about salvation, we're not just thinking about the remission of sins. We're talking about much more. Salvation is understood, well, in accordance with the dictum made famous by, but not original to, St. Athanasius of Alexandria in the fourth century. God became human so that humans might be deified. So salvation is much more than the simple forgiveness or remission of sins. It's an invitation, an entry uh, into the divine life. This is what is sometimes uh, summed up in the, well, sometimes off-putting, but nonetheless very patristically rooted phrase, theosis or deification, uh, incorporation into the divine life. Uh, I only have a little to add to this, you know, as a, as a Catholic. And I think a lot of people tend to think of salvation as kind of fire insurance, right? I don't want to go to hell, and so I, I need to get this insurance so I can go to the other place. And I think when you think of salvation in terms of places, it's you have a mistaken notion because really salvation is the healing of a fractured relationship between the creator and his creation. 
And, you know, in the patristic era, you find a lot of meditation on the nature of salvation when thinking about the creation stories in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, this becomes a place where, you know, Ephraim the Syrian, a uh, very famous Syriac author of the fourth century, will meditate on what it means uh, to, to be saved and what it means to, to return to a kind of paradisical existence. So it's, it's really important, I think, to see salvation, as you've noted, as, as this kind of ongoing process. But the process doesn't just terminate in a, in a transference of place. It, it terminates in our, our conformity to, um, uh, to, to, to God. And, and so it's, it's a healing of our relationship. Um, and not only the healing, but the elevation of our status within creation, that by God's grace, um, you know, we're, we're made into something greater than we could be without it. Um, which, of course, you know, I'm, I'm hesitant to, to speak for any other tradition but my own. But whether you're Orthodox, Catholic, or Anglican slash Episcopalian, you know, we all see that the primacy of grace in this, this narrative. It really is um, God working in us, as St. Paul says. I know you both teach undergraduates, uh, Marcus at Marquette, Josh at Notre Dame. Uh, are they? Are your undergraduates surprised, to, I think, to hear this more robust sense of salvation you've presented here, uh, whether you're talking about fire insurance or a lifelong process? Um, you know, what's their own sort of reaction to, uh, you know, this more comprehensive vision you present? Yes, my, when I do a Theo introduction to theology, Theo 101, there's quite a bit of early church characteristics, orthodox understanding of salvation, actually, I tend to make theosis um, quite a central theme. And for example, when I'm introducing doctrines of the Trinity or doctrines of the person of Christ, it's always oriented around a soteriological um, axis. So when it comes to the Trinity, when it comes to um, the person of Christ, we're, we're asking, well, you know, what has happened on the cross ultimately? What did happen on the cross? Well, if it's not God, no salvation. If he didn't become human, no salvation. If he wasn't somehow one, no salvation. If he wasn't somehow two, no salvation. And I think so long as one's able to speak in terms of, say, the incorporations of the divine life, as I've already done, um, they can really get a sense of what theosis means. And I think they're actually often quite excited to hear about this broader perspective of salvation, that it isn't just, you know, we've really mucked up and, and God has to pay the price and, you know, we'll try not to do it again. Um, but um, yes, this sort of more expansive uh, vision. So I tend to find it's uh, something the students really pick up on. Yeah, I find a lot of my students tend to think somebody else mucked up and I'm paying the price. You know, I, uh, m most of my students are, are, you know, very Midwest nice. Uh, they're, they're very nice people. And um, too often they think of Christianity as simply being nice people. Um, and so I think when I, when I try to flesh out that the Christian life is, this, is one of growing into greater conformity uh, with Christ and, and to live a life of charity, to see that one's end goal is this relationship with God, not simply being located in a better place. I think they, they tend to take their own salvation a little bit more seriously at that point. You know, and a teaching point I use um, when I'm teaching these early Christologies from the patristic period, I always ask them, what kind of Eucharist does this give you? Uh, you know, what, what can Arius's Eucharist give you? What can Nestorius's Eucharist give you? Well, it can't give you salvation as we're conceiving of it. It can give you something else. You know, it can give you a supercharged uh, creature um, or something like that. But it doesn't give you God himself. And, and that's precisely what salvation is ultimately. 
And I, I think when I put it in those terms, they, they tend to appreciate the Eucharist a little bit more as well. Drawing upon certain figures from the tradition, um, it, could you name one or two for, that you think, uh, for the listeners of this, that you know this is a particularly intelligible, beautiful account of salvation that, that really anyone involved in this kind of ministry or teaching should read or encounter in their, uh, so to make them a better teacher or minister? One person I pick, and I'm sorry if I'm picking uh, anyone that Josh was going to pick, but um, one person I certainly pick is St. Athanasius of Alexandria. I mean, just look at his work on the Incarnation. Now, although there's a, um, a certain emphasis on the passage from Incarnation to Deification, again, God became human incarnation so that humans might become divine, uh, Deification, the whole treatise is presented as a meditation on the mystery of the cross. So here we have, in a relatively short span of pages, in a non-polemical context, an extremely rich meditation on the theme of um, incarnation and deification centered on the cross. And if I can pick another figure, it would be St. Nicholas Cavatilas from the 14th century, who is a Byzantine theologian, uh, a great friend and supporter of uh, St. Gregory Palamas, um, who developed a robust defense of the possibility of the vision of God as light, deification beginning in this life. Um, but Kavasilas actually is aware of Anselm's understanding of atonement and actually borrows some uh, interesting features from Anselm's understanding of atonement in terms of a, of a debt of honour owed to God, uh, in terms of sacrifice, in terms of sacri- uh, satisfaction, but sets that kind of language within a more typically orthodox understanding of deification and uh, in general when, I, when I'm talking about uh, atonement I often like to remind people of the um, original sense of the word in English because atonement of course is the only theological term we use of, of purely English origin uh, coming back to at one to go back to Tyndale's translation of catalogy or, or reconciliation and although when yes when we're talking about atonement we, we tend to be talking about well, what happened on the cross, broadly speaking. Um, but the, the root meaning, of course, is at one And what is at one of man and God, but deification? So in other words, I think, you know, with someone like Kavasilas, we have a, a key to understanding some of the insights of both East and West when it comes to this question of, well, what happened um, on the cross um, that enables one to focus on the mystery of the cross after Athanasius but doing so within this overarching uh, schema of uh, passage from incarnation uh, to deification, which is the at one of God and humans, humans becoming divine. So there you are, two. That was at least two. Perhaps that was more than two in the end. We won't count it against you. You're allowed. One, one figure per, you know, sort of uh, millennium will allow. <laughs> yeah, that seems fair to me. I might just stick in the first millennium, though, um, but I, I will choose two. I think the the first one I would uh, I would turn people to is is maybe not one that they've read a lot of, but probably should. And this is again Ephraim the Syrian, this fourth century Syriac author whom I love quite a lot. You know, he has uh, this line in his hymn on our Lord. He says, "Glory be to the one who took from us, so that he might give to us." that through that which is ours, we might receive all the more abundantly that which is his. And you see this, this is a common uh, trope in patristic literature on salvation, that 
the word who empties himself, according to the Philippian hymn, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, the, the son of God who, who comes all the way down into the depths of our human condition does so not just to live a human life, but to give us his divine life, you know, to, to reconcile our natures in his very self. And thinking along East-West issues, I'll mention a Western figure uh, who also espouses this kind of idea of deification. And this is Augustine of Hippo, whom people have read uh, quite a lot of, but maybe don't think of immediately when it comes to the topic of, of deification. But for instance, um, in his, his homilies, the Enerationes on the Psalms, in 145, he says, God is with us in order that we may be with him. He who came down to us in order to be with us is at work now to draw us up to himself so that we may be in his company. And so again, this idea that the, you know, God comes all the way down to us, but not just to kind of be here with us, but to take us back up with him uh, into, into divine life. And, uh, you know, there's a really great book by Dave McConey on this very topic of, of deification in, in Augustine's thought. As I've been talking lately with clergy friends and worship leaders, and yes, I have a lot of friends that are clergy and worship leaders, I have heard this sentence multiple times. I love planning for Advent. It's just a beautiful, rich time of year, isn't it? And if you'd like a simple way to enrich it further while helping you with preaching and your own worship planning, click the link in the show notes today and try a free month of The Living Word Plus. This is a worship planning resource especially curated by the editors of The Living Church. It's a weekly email with short articles, sermons, and classic texts pre-selected to dovetail with your work that week. There's a lot to enjoy here. I actually edit these emails, and I often get lost in them and have to remind myself to stay on task. They are very engaging. Click the link in the show notes to try The Living Word Plus for free for the next 30 days. I don't know how many times I heard in graduate studies or even still at conferences, in the, especially in the Catholic theological world, um, which, Marcus, you have to endure at Marquette, I presume, um, right? Uh, you hear the West focuses on the cross, the East on deification, right, or, or divinization. And I think in his recent book, Father Khaled Anatolios, who, who helped direct my dissertation, by the way, at Boston College, um, he makes a somewhat important claim. He says that that distinction is insufficient. He shows that that uh, insufficiency across really a 400-page tome. Um, could you tell us, you know, what do you think about uh, Father Anatolius's major claim? There's a there's a problem with this uh, sort of division. I think Marcus, you've already hinted that you don't accept it, so um, it gives us a sense of of what you think about it. But what do you think are really the problems with drawing that division so clearly between East and West? Yes. Um, well, this is a, um, Father Khaled Anatolius' book is an, is an excellent book on the topic and is, is clearly right in uh, trying to uh, do away with any sort of simple dichotomy between East and West on this score. And though this dichotomy may, be, may have been a feature of some recent uh, particularly pedagogical presentation of East-West difference and so forth. It's, uh, it's certainly not something that's there in the tradition. I mean, I already highlighted Athanasius as somebody who, yes, yeah, so he's an Easterner, often presented as one of these people who focus on incarnation and deification. But what do you find on the first page upon the incarnation? Well, it's about the mystery of the cross. 
So, you know, if this, this dichotomy is something which I think is fairly recent and is not there in the tradition, and again, if you look at the way someone like Nicholas Cavasilas in the 14th century is able to um, assimilate um, even someone like Anselm within a more, arguably more typical um, Eastern Christian uh, Orthodox understanding of um, deification, we see that, you know, it's not a straw man as such, but at the same time, it's just simply not there in the tradition. And you could go further, you could look at someone like um, yeah, Isaac the Syrian, uh, Maximus the Confessor, uh, all sorts of other th figures in both East and West. Uh, I think also of a modern figure, figure in Orthodox theology, Father George uh, Florovsky, who started but didn't complete um, a book on the atonement. And you can read um, his um, the beginnings of his work on the atonement in a book that came out a few years ago uh, called On the Tree of the Cross. And On the Tree of the Cross is precisely a line taken from the Latin liturgy in Nino Grutus. And actually, Ferovsky structures his whole um, understanding of the atonement around, well, Latin liturgical tags like in Nino Grutus and also um, Augustine uh, in particular. So there you have a modern Orthodox, contemporary Orthodox theologian actually structuring his vision of the atonement, uh, particularly around Augustine and the Latin liturgy. Now, I have to, I have to note that Ferovsky was very skeptical about Anselm's language of um, satisfaction and a debt of honor um, and so forth. But um, yeah, someone like Cavasilas reminds us that even uh, those uh, elements, which are sometimes written off in modern Orthodox theology, at least, but they can certainly have a place. And we can't do without legalistic juridical language, given there's so much of it in the New Testament and old. So this is just another instance, I suppose, where these easy dichotomies between East and West need to be done away with uh, within the contemporary uh, ecumenical arena. And you know, when it comes to um, ecumenical conversations, I often think that the way to go is not to Sort of try and minimize our differences and try and see you know the minimum the lowest common denominator that we can agree on but go deeper into our traditions and say the deeper you go into augustine for example you more you see something like theosis and the deeper you go into the, the orthodox tradition the greek patristic and byzantine tradition the more you can see that well some of this supposedly latin language of well focus on the crucifixion for example or use of juridical languages is there absolutely so yeah the deeper we go i think maybe the closer we get to one another. Yeah, I think I think the distinctions are helpful insofar as they draw into greater focus um, the the emphases and the nuances of various theological traditions. And I don't think we want to smooth those things over. I think we want to still appreciate them. But it's it's when those emphases and nuances become overly stressed to the point that you think the two are incommensurate, that they just have nothing to do with one another um, and, and could never have anything to do with one another. Um, that's, that's when they become problematic. And I, I think we have a lot of these kinds of things um, in preliminary theological education. I, I call them, you know, everybody knows kinds of facts. You know, everybody knows the Orthodox and the Catholics split in 1054. Of course, everybody knows except for those living in 1054 and 1055, because at, you know there's still intercommunion, there's still dialogue, um, or you know things like um, when I teach, for instance, um, on the filioque, which of course is the big east-west dividing issue. Everybody knows. You know, I, I try to say, well, look, why in the West 
are they emphasizing the equality of the Son to the Father? It's because Arianism persists in the West in a way it simply doesn't in the East. Okay, what's what's the issue going on in the East? It's modalism. And so to stress the equality of Father and Son there, uh, rather than the individual kind of qualities that make Father the Father, that make the Son the Son, the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, that would actually kind of undermine your your you know, your anti-modalist arguments. Now, these are just emphases. Can you be both, you know, can you hold a Christology that is both not Arian and not modalist? Of course you can. It's, it's an Orthodox Christology. But these emphases and nuances arose out of particular historical conditions, which as responsible scholars, you know, we have to be hip to. But when they become stressed in our polemics, uh, to the point where, you know, now, now we can't even talk to one another because you belong to this camp and I belong to this camp. Well, I think that's when the, the distinctions stop being helpful and, in fact, obscure uh, our understanding of, of the history of Christianity. Um, you know, a lot of listeners of this uh, podcast, of this program, uh, would describe themselves as Protestant, right? Anglican and Episcopalian. Uh, where do you think they would fit in in this narrative? You know, how can you sort of uh, sort of enter a sort of third into this dialogue, I suppose, um, between w- what we're saying is the West and the East. Of course, there's distinctions even amongst the Anglicans and the Episcopalians with the Catholics. Yeah, well, one could certainly point to sources within the Anglican tradition that have, you know, fully assimilated this notion of um, theosis. So someone like Lancelot Andrews, uh, for example, one of the Caroline divines. Um, more recently, someone like Michael Ramsey, Bishop of Canterbury, um, and indeed the another recent Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. So I think certainly within the Anglican tradition, um, some of the hymns of John Mason Neal, um, this theme of theosis is certainly there, if not necessarily um, at the heart and centre of Christian teaching. Um, but I, I do think it's sometimes worth not hitting people with the term theosis straight away, because um, that can sound a little bit off-putting or even a little bit pagan. If is that what theosis is all about, becoming kind of gods in our own right, as it were. Um, so yes, incorporation into the divine life is a good way in. And I think Romans 8, spirit within us crying, Abba, Father, that's what it means for the for the spirit to incorporate us into the divine life. Uh, one thing I don't encourage people to do is to talk about a, um, a divine dance. Uh, sometimes uh, the church fathers will talk about uh, divine coherence or perichoresis. Sometimes that's explicated as a divine dance, but it's much more mutual indwelling, and much more in accordance with this idea of incorporation into the divine life. But um, I think, you know, this vision of um, salvation as not only the forgiveness of sins, but entry into a new and divine uh, mode of life, it has enormous potential pastoral value in our context today, where perhaps people would don't necessarily want to be told all the time how sinful they are and about how the whole Christian message is completely conditioned by the question of sin and uh, expiation of sin. I mean, clearly sin is inescapable, but it's, um, remember Julian of Norwich when she, she's shown this tiny speck and Jesus tells her that this is the entire sin of the world. And that's how big it is in God's eye view, if of course it's rather an impediment uh, to us. But yes, while we certainly aren't going to stop talking about sin and have to talk about sin, it's insignificant compared to the glories stored up for us in deification, in incorporation to the divine life. And therefore, where do Protestant brothers and sisters 
kind of find their way in. I mean, much of what Marx and I are talking about today is simply the common patrimony of anybody who calls themselves a Christian. Um, you know, the, the, the Anglicans certainly were top of the game as far as studying the fathers go, uh, you know, in the 19th century. I mean, they, they, they at least were besting the Roman Catholics. I don't want to speak for the Orthodox, but um, yeah, they were, they were, they were doing a, a fine job and we're all indebted indebted to their translations. There are a lot of efforts in these quarters um, to to keep patristic thought and to, to keep the kind of historic thought um, in view in, in modern, you know, Episcopalian, Anglican theology, and in fact, outside of these circles too. You know, I think of, um, for instance, Martin Luther is sometimes considered to be like the, you know, the chief priest for this forensic justification. You know, it's, in, it's entirely outside of yourself and this kind of this great exchange uh, whereby, you know, uh, Christ, the righteous one, is now considered unrighteous and, and you, you know, get to stand where, uh, where he stood as the righteous one. And God is kind of, you know, turning a blind eye to your sin. This is an interpretation of Luther that's, you know, running around in some quarters. But there's an entire school in, uh, you know, in Finland right now that's rereading Luther and and trying to kind of find even this, this idea of theosis. I don't know if they're calling it theosis, but um, they're, they're finding this idea that the exchange is, is much more than kind of simply guilt, um, that the, the incarnation really does give to human beings something greater. Um, than, than the imputation of, of innocence. Um, and so, uh, yeah, this is a conversation that we, uh, you know, that we're all having and that we're all kind of reading uh, common sources to, uh, to come together on. Excellent uh, to mention Luther. And of course, people are doing similar things, even with Calvin, uh, even with Jonathan Edwards. Um, Theosis is suddenly um, everywhere. But um, what Josh was just saying reminded me uh, to... <laughs> emphasize that atonement has never actually been a big dividing line between East and West. It's, you know, it's not like the filioque, the papacy, or even something like purgatory. It's never been something that Christians of East and West have felt the need to break communion over. So it's very much a function, I think, of the Protestant Reformation, that it's become sort of center stage in theological discussions. And I suppose it's been sort of almost transposed onto the Greek East, Latin West uh, dividing line, as if we simply must have something to disagree on here. You know, we disagree on so much else. Surely we disagree about the atonement as well. But perhaps um, we don't disagree so fundamentally. And I'm talking here not only about Catholics and Orthodox, but also Protestants, given some of this recent work on, on Luther, Calvin, Edwards and others. Yeah, I think that's right. And I wonder, Marcus, you know, in, in reading Khaled's book, when he he addresses the issue of these models of salvation, um, and and certainly in certain quarters of Christianity, some models are going to have more prominence than others. You know, if if you want to buy into the models, but it seems to me that Khaled is asking a more fundamental question. Right? What he's asking, what is going on here? And the models are trying to explain how is it going on? What is the kind of mechanics of this glorification to which human beings are called? And so I wonder if the more fundamental question is a, a kind of better starting ground, whereas the models seem like they can't quite meet each other. If you kind of get to the more fundamental question of what it is that we're about, as you're saying, if, if ultimately theosis is simply a native category of Christian theology, however it's explicated in particular traditions, that this might be um, some, some fertile ground for, uh, for ecumenical discussions. Yeah, I think you're really onto something there. And uh, 
in Khaled's book is certainly onto something there, wanting to get behind the models to what's actually going on and uh, pointing out how these models can actually really um, mislead us when we're trying to read the church fathers and notice that, you know, we've got a text from Athanasius or Cavasilas or whoever it might be who seems to use about 10 different models in, you know, one, one or two paragraphs. And um, yeah, I always bring it back to this principle of, excuse me for going on about it, but God became human so that humans might be divinized. Um, this is a, um, a movement that, of course, is has as its axis the cross. And, um, and again, I think Khaled does a good job of pointing out how atonement has got to be situated when they're in a broader context of Trinitarian theology, Christology, fidelity to scripture, fidelity to um, church tradition, fidelity um, to what we learn in our liturgy uh, in both East um, and West. So um, I think, um, yeah, what's really going on is this, this movement, this double movement of um, descent and ascent centered um, on the cross. If we keep bringing it back to the cross, we, God willing, won't go too far wrong. Of course, I think if you want to continue on, you want to pick up Father Khaled Anatolius's book, Deification Through the Cross, Marcus's own work on this. And of course, Josh, you'll be publishing amply on this any moment, right? Oh, certainly. Absolutely. So um, before we finish up and wrap up, I wanted to have one last question. I think uh, it's really hard for all of us right now. I mean, uh, you know, as professors, teachers, ministers to think uh, through life, you know, in this sort of COVID world, post-COVID, in COVID, uh, whatever tide this is, this unending COVID tide, I suppose you could think about. Um, and I wanted to ask, you know, especially in light of everything that's happened for the last 18, 19, 20 months, um, how is some of what we talked about today uh, perhaps something that a teacher or minister could draw upon in addressing, you know, some of the real problems and issues raised by COVID right now? Uh, one of the things I was thinking about is we've gotten very good at complaining about everything in COVID and, and rather than sort of even perceiving how, how solitude, uh, sometimes this strange world of of vaccines and masking can be occasions in which we can participate in divine life even here. That was just one thought I had, but do either of you have other thoughts? Goodness. Well, um, endless thoughts on that uh, important and still topical uh, topic, uh, even though I like to think we're post-COVID rather than a never-ending COVID emergency, as some would have it. And clearly this has been a real challenge uh, for people of faith um, throughout the world. I would note that, you know, despite the, the death and the terrible suffering compared to some of the plagues that humankind has experienced, it's a very benign uh, plague. Um, but I think it's raised enormous questions for the church and the church being classified in some contexts as a kind of non-essential service. And yeah, when, it, when we think about salvation, I mean, where do, we, where do we expect salvation to come from? Do we expect it to come from, um, you know, medical and, and non-medical? Uh, interventions that include not going to church or, or not receiving the Eucharist. Um, I think it's a reminder that salvation comes from above and is not to be sought in any earthly or human agency. Um, that's on the, on, the, on the plus side. I mean, Tim was alluding to periods of solitude and quiet. And I dare say for some people, there's been a certain amount of hesychia or stillness. For other people, of course, it's been a psychological nightmare to be cut off. I don't know if you know the story associated with Macarius, St. Macarius of Egypt, when he meets a pagan priest, uh, on a, well, sees a skull on the road and 
finds out it was a pagan priest who lived there thereabouts and uh, he asks where the skull uh, where the pagan priest is now he's in hell what's hell like well we're tied back to back and we can't see one another's faces we can't see one another's faces and i think the the the, the masking of the face has been one of the great um, problems of the modern age and i'm always thinking about c.s lewis's till we have faces how can we see the gods or how can we relate to god until we have a face um, ourselves. So it's been a time of, yes, perhaps some positives, but I think it's been an enormous challenge for the church. Where do we expect salvation to come from? Uh, from some earthly agency or from God incarnate on the cross? And just seeing how devastating and, and difficult this has been for so many people, um, especially socially, and how isolating it's been. Uh, when I was thinking about this question, the verse from Hebrews came to my mind from Hebrews 4.15, and I'll read the, the King James Version, you know, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. You know, part of the good news is that God has some skin in the game, literally, um, and that he, this this exchange that he does is, is makes him, in some sense, uh, you know, more aware. He's, he's not this kind of distant one, this monad who's unaffected by your own sufferings, but actually participates in them with you and you in his. Um, and this is because he loves you. And it's, it's quite difficult, I think. It can seem really, really abstract uh, to remember that, you know, God loves you. I mean, what does that even mean? But I think the, the I don't know, when one contemplates these doctrines, right, they're not meant to simply be mental games. They're meant to give you some greater insight into the Christian life. And so when you think about what it is that God was willing to do for you and, and what salvation really is, it can add, it can give some solace to your life. It doesn't mean that the, the, the loneliness becomes maybe less lonely, but you do know at least that Christ is there with you in the loneliness, that he too experienced that kind of loneliness um, and is not distant from it. We've been talking to Dr. Marcus Plested and uh, Dr. Joshua McManaway. Uh, and on that note, I think, which was really a sort of excellent conversation, not uh, of both doctrine and the spiritual life together. Um, I just want to thank both of you for being on here today. And uh, I hope that our listeners uh, will, will find your work and, and get to know uh, what you're doing a bit better. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning into the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. In two weeks, we are welcoming the world-renowned Anglican evangelist, Jay John, onto our show in a lively conversation with Carrie Bourne Headington, canon for evangelism in the Diocese of Dallas. And they are talking about evangelism, the E word. You don't want to miss it. Subscribe to our podcast and you won't. As always, I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been great to be with you. Peace. Peace.